Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to FYI, Arc's weekly podcast on innovation and technology investing. This is our first episode of the post-corona world. I'm joined by fellow analyst Nick Gruss. Nick, how are you doing? I'm holding up. I am holding up in the midst of all of this. That is for certain. You know, one thing that keeps coming up is what's going to change for the better, what's going to change for the worst in this new world. We started as a firm, started working at home basically end of day Monday last week. And it's been a week. It's pretty lonely. It has been lonely. Luckily, I I do have a significant other that I can spend some time with and two cats at home as well. (laughs) So I haven't been as lonely as you. (laughs) I'm just slowly kind of going insane, my little little one-bedroom unit in New York. Okay. Well, you know, we are working from home. We are staying at home now. It's everything in New York seems to be closed, I think, except for grocery stores and maybe pharmacies. I haven't been outside much, so I can't tell you what's open and what's not. But working from home, ARC has implemented a pretty strong business continuity plan. So we do have the ability to speak as a company. We're using Teams right now, Microsoft Teams. But James, I know this is in your coverage universe. Can you just kind of walk us through some more work at home services and and what the outlook is for this space? Yeah. I mean, work from home wasn't even a possibility until maybe 15 years ago, right? And only right now it's for knowledge workers, quote unquote. It used to be basically email. And, you know, you basically email Excel spreadsheets around, PowerPoint around. And kind of Excel was the one app that ruled all other apps. It's kind of basically a Victorinox of SaaS software, if you will. And really all the companies that's come about in the last 10, 15 years are just online cloud specialized versions that improve upon a specific workflow you might have done in Excel and Outlook in the past. You know, we use a pretty typical system. You know, typically working from home requires two things. You need a kind of video conferencing solution and you need a messaging solution. Mm -hmm. Startup may use something like Zoom and Slack. We've standardized on Microsoft Teams for messaging and LifeSize for video conferencing. So there are a couple of solutions for all of these. Most are pretty good. But right now, the the story of Corona from a kind of work from home perspective has definitely been Zoom video communications. This was founded by Eric Yuan maybe a decade ago. He was the inventor of WebEx. You know, that's okay. the first generation. And that's a free service, correct? There's a free tier with all free of these. Free tier, okay. WebEx is kind of the OG you know, present from a distance kind of solution. The main thing, the main difference is WebEx is designed to give presentations, mm-hmm. whereas Zoom is designed to feed video. That's the big difference. So Cisco acquired WebEx for a handsome sum. Eric joined them and tried to really build Zoom within Cisco. He said, hey, video is really going to be the next big thing. We should do something there. And they just weren't interested. This is a you know classic innovator's dilemma. They just weren't interested. So he basically had to quit, take a bunch of engineers with him, and start Zoom. And now Zoom is the fastest growing at scale enterprise software company probably in the world. 
And we've talked internally about Zoom's rise to fame. And I think there's been a lot of question as to why Zoom, right? All of these services do solve the same problem, right? Just getting you in a video conferencing with multiple people. But why is it Zoom? Why is Zoom taking off? I'm just curious. Yeah, it's kind of like these questions are sometimes have a clear answer and sometimes don't. I think Zoom's case, it has somewhat of a clear answer. Zoom is, first, Eric's background is in this kind of remote conferencing and video product development. He is probably the person in the world most passionate about this versus anyone. So if anyone's going to do it, he's probably the person to do it. When you look at the competition, they're really kind of just fossils. You have Cisco with WebEx, you have kind of like GoToMeeting and a couple of other ones. No one is 100% in. And a lot of them are coming from legacy architectures. And they may be coming from Microsoft, like that, which came from Skype, which is a voice-based architecture. You might be coming from Cisco and WebEx, which is kind of a presentation-based architecture. And Zoom's whole claim to fame is we built this from scratch and mm-hmm. we're building this with our own kind of cloud co-located data centers. And the whole thing is designed to scale for video, which requires kind of like fundamental scalability design decisions that the other products probably didn't have. And Eric is also kind of a really strong product-minded person. He always talks about customer happiness. He's responding one-to-one to product feedback on Twitter, just like Elon Musk is. So he's got really that kind of an attitude. And everyone else, to them, video conferencing is one sub-product that they bundle as part of a suite like how Google has treated Hangouts, right? I think many people liked Hangouts in the beginning. I I certainly liked it. But overall, like from Google's perspective, almost $200 billion in revenue, you have all these, you know, federal investigations going on. You have a lot of things on your plate and mastering video communications for that industry vertical is not priority one or even priority five, right? In Mm -hmm. Sundar's purview. So I think focus, clean architecture, and really kind of best in class product design, sensibility, and leadership has really helped them gain this kind of preeminent position. Okay. And Zoom does seem to be gaining a lot of market share during this time. I'm seeing it all over Twitter. People are talking about it. And I've seen people talk about Zoom in the context of it just works. Is there a point where it doesn't work because there is so much demand for the service? Talk us through the infrastructure layer. How does Zoom continue to scale? Are we going to run into problems down the road if we are working from home for the next four months? Yeah. The great thing about cloud is that it scales really well, right? If you're a traditional like enterprise data center and your capacity doubles, you have to go to HP and say, hey, send me twice as much servers as you did last time. That whole process takes weeks, maybe mm-hmm. more. By then, your your whole system is, you know, Corona's over by then, right? The wonderful thing about cloud is the data center has excess capacity and elasticity built in. So if you need extra capacity, you can just like basically go into your MacBook, type a couple of things in a command prompt and servers just boot up in the cloud. Hardware becomes a virtualized resource rather than this thing that you have to order and then someone ship. All that's done ahead of time. And for the really good cloud service providers, you're sharing resources between multiple companies, okay. right? So, so that way, you know, if one customer capacity decreases, that capacity can be used for a customer B. That's the architecture Amazon kind of pioneered. And who is providing the data center and cloud storage for Zoom? Do you know? Zoom, I think, is co-located, and I think they probably use some cloud infra as well. 
they mentioned in their last earnings call that they saw an increased demand and they're spinning up extra instances. And so far, I've heard no outages in terms of capacity issues or anything for Zoom. But for Microsoft Teams, I think the, today's news was that they went down for two hours in Europe, presumably because people in Europe started logging online and the work at home capacity increased and Teams went down for mm -hmm. two hours. So that doesn't look good for them. So Zoom is not using a third-party provider. They're not using AWS, they're not using Google. Okay, so for Zoom, they have their own hardware co-located in data centers. It's a very common practice among software kind of SaaS companies. Companies like Equinix will basically be at the kind of juncture of interchange where all the web traffic goes through, and you can basically place your servers there and they will manage it for you. So they have 13 co-located data centers. They probably have kind of excess capacity built in there, and they use AWS for some application-related mm -hmm. stuff. And when we're thinking about Zoom, because it does seem to be a commodity-type service that they provide, right? It's not new, and it's not something that another company can step right into. What is their competitive moat? What makes Zoom so fierce in today's market? I think people have turned to Zoom because of how reliable it is, and it just works. When the IPO happened, I looked through all the comments, I looked through all the feedback I got from IT dev people and, and people who've tried multiple solutions, who's tried, quote unquote, every solution under the sun. Zoom is the only one that works reliably. And they're like, hey, if you want to just have two people chat on a non-urgent thing, use Hangouts, use whatever you want, use Skype, mm -hmm. right? But if you're trying to close a six-figure deal, you cannot afford to have the video have link go down or right. have stuttering or have issues. So it's really, I think, cemented itself as having kind of genuine enterprise-grade reliability. So it seems we've come to a consensus and maybe a slogan for Zoom here. It just works. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> they took the old Apple slogan and made it their own. And that's what people say. Another thing that helps them is, is virality. I think, you know, when companies became a verb, you know, something's kind of magical has happened. Right. Yeah. You know, let's Zoom. And that's definitely happened with Zoom. Zoom is turning into a verb. And it's starting to spread because, because when you get a Zoom invite, you have to download the client. Mm -hmm. So as people invite other people, it actually has Facebook-like network effects in the sense that people invite people and then soon everyone is using the same thing. Okay, so let's move away from video now and talk about this other portion of what you really need to continue business as usual when you're working remote, and that's the messaging portion. We're using Teams other companies will probably say they use Slack. I think those are the two main competitors out there and, and services. What is it about these two that are different? And why is it so important to have that real-time, quick communication, almost text-like, instead of email? Because email is too heavy for back-and-forth chat, right? Text has always been very desirable. These clients have been around for a while. And, and until Slack came around, it was kind of, uh, it wasn't really well served. No one thought this was an enterprise grade thing. Maybe mm -hmm. companies had some internal chat tools, but people were using iMessage. I mean, heck, we were using iMessage at some point, right? Just to ping each other. But, you know, to make sure everything is, you know, proper enterprise grade and traceable and all this stuff, you need kind of a proper solution. And Slack really has become the de facto messaging client for groups of people to communicate and collaborate. Microsoft saw that coming. They, they, they responded. They had Skype. But Skype, once again, comes from a legacy architecture designed for one-to-one -one voice calls. They evolved that to video. They evolved that to groups. But in the end, Slack for Business just was viewed as this kind of second tier, not that great product. So they rebuilt something, branded it Teams, bundled it with Office 365. It works pretty well, right? Mm -hmm. I think people will say its UI and its polish is not as good as Slack. And that's probably true, but it, it has other benefits. It integrates with Office things really well. And 
I would say the sign-up process is easier. We, we A-B tested both of them before we set it on Teams. And I wanted Slack to win, to be honest, right? But like we could, the whole Slack sign-up process starting at a workspace, what is a workspace? I have no idea. So that just confused the heck out of us. And, and every company needs to make mm-hmm. the decision of what tool makes sense for them. Yeah. Teams just felt more natural for us. They're functionally substantially equivalent. Right. And having used both personally in the past, I would agree with you. I think Slack is a lot more user-friendly. It just has that feel of iMessage. It's very easy to use. Communicate threads are just more intuitive. Where going on Teams, it feels a bit clunky. It does feel like there is a bit of that legacy idea still baked into it. But I think both serve a great purpose and they are obviously being heavily used today in this market and in this environment. What other services does a business need to function when you go remote, when you work from home? This is just for, so far, we're really touching on communications, Mm -hmm. right? And there is all manner of HR and finance and security applications. Security is an interesting one because like once you work from home, the whole security architecture changes. You used to have to use VPN to log into your laptop. And the benefit, like one thing that I don't feel like people really talked about is as we switch to these cloud apps, we don't really use VPN anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you ever use VPN, but you basically kind of type in a six digit code and then you kind of tunneled into the company's private network. Yeah, This private or public network thing, that distinction with with cloud applications is really disappearing. If you're going to log into Salesforce, for example, you just go into a browser and log in with your credentials, right? There's no longer this, oh, I have to get into the corporate network and then I got to do something. That's a very old way of doing things. That's how work from home was 15 years ago, my last job. That's how you work from home. The benefit of these cloud applications is that you go straight to the public cloud and you can just work anywhere. That's It feels exactly the same as if you're in the office. There's no kind of tunneling in to applications. So things like Salesforce, Workday, we just started using Concur for expensing, DocuSign. Mm -hmm. Like you basically have a whole suite of applications. You can sign documents, do your expense reports, manage your finances. All this stuff used to reside inside of an enterprise-grade server somewhere in the basement. We don't have any of that, right? Right. These are now all applications in the cloud. So all these companies, I think, stands to benefit in the long term. In the near term, there's going to be rough waters because their customers are now scrambling and they don't want to you know, try to sign new deals or change things. They just want to make sure that things work right now. So deals will probably get pushed back. New customer signups will get pushed back a quarter or two. And people are really angsty about that. All the names you're talking about sound like they're going to benefit from this work at home culture. And I think what we're really getting at here is software as a service. It pairs very well with what's happening in the market today. But the concern for many investors and for everyone watching this space recently has been the sky high valuations. Zoom, Slack have all had those concerns from their time of from IPO. What is happening with them now? Talk us through the outlook for them going forward. Yeah, the SaaS names as a whole, like these 50, 60 companies have been absolutely beaten up over the last two weeks. Beaten up a lot. Even the work from home companies we've spoke about have been beaten up? With the exception of Zoom, Slack after their earnings sold off 20%. Everything from Workday to Salesforce to Atlassian have sold off. And, you know, for good reason. People are like, you know, whether it's coronavirus or whatnot, the market was looking kind of hot, a little maybe too hot at the beginning of the year. 
I was already worried about SaaS valuations toward the end of 2019. And that was kind of all-time high. So even with the validation that we're seeing today in the market because of coronavirus and these names gaining huge engagement numbers, there's still that concern around valuation? The only company that's really seen a tailwind in a measurable way is Zoom. Okay. And Zoom has a sentiment, I think, going forward. Every other company is going to suffer some short-term sales issues as a result of coronavirus. They are the right things to use, definitely, but you can't sign up a Fortune 500 company overnight right. to a service okay. just because you know coronavirus hit. They're scrambling That's with other point. things, right? So just to give you a sense of perspective, kind of at the end of 2019, enterprise software companies were trading at all-time high valuations, exceeding the prior high set about a year ago. It was close to 14 times sales, forward sales. And the average is about seven. So it's trading at 2x the historical average. And from coronavirus, I think investors first kind of sold off all the travel and, and real life entertainment names. But then they're, they're like, okay, where else is there risk? I think they went to SaaS because these were high multiple growth. Even a slight deceleration growth would cause a re-rating. So they went to town with these set of companies. And now that's sold back down to kind of uh, March 16th, down to about nine times forward sales. So still a bit above the historical average, but finally down to, you know, quote unquote, a more reasonable territory. Hmm. All right, Nick, let's talk about your side. So I'd say, you know, when, you, when you're not at work, I think the new reality is you work from home and you play from home. In terms of entertainment on the consumer side, what has changed since Corona hit and how are they adapting to this change? There has been this nationwide shutdown of live sporting events. The NBA has suspended its season. The MLB has pushed out the opening day. We're getting all of this news around the country about sporting events and, and events over a certain number of people being shut down and, and the quarantine is in full effect. So you're right, there is this play from home mentality. And I think with the absence of live sports, what we're really starting to see is online gaming taking off. It's not that it wasn't taking off prior to Corona. This is now just adding fuel to a fire that was already burning pretty bright. But now we are really starting to see this market take off. Perfect example. And I think this is a great kind of when you have live sporting no longer there, that world will adapt to what is working, which is online gaming. The Phoenix Suns, which is a team in the NBA, within five hours of hearing that their season was suspended, signed up an online streamer, paired that streamer with another streamer for the Dallas Mavericks, and now are going to simulate the rest of their season. So they'll play on the same cadence that would have happened for their normal season, but they'll now simulate this in NBA 2K, which is a popular video game owned by Take-Two. And the first time they did this, this was on Sunday night, they received over 11,000 viewers. And it doesn't sound like much, but when you think about the live in-game attendance of what the Phoenix Suns were seeing from 2018 to 2019, they had only 15,000. So you're starting to see the amount of viewers on Twitch, the service that they use, was actually in line with that, what they were receiving on a regular season. Let me get this straight. They replace their real games with a video game? Right. Which is amazing. And this <laughs> happened within five hours. So it's not that 
people were scrambling around. It was almost as if they had this planned, right? You think they, were, they had it planned? Within five hours, right? So they, they were working on this already. They had to have had some type of continuity plan in the in the case. I'm sure they had rumors and rumblings about this maybe coming. And, and um, they couldn't play just with no audience. That's not even allowed anymore. That was the first step, right? It was rumors the March Madness tournament for the NCAA was going to play without a live audience. And then it was, no, we're not playing at all. And so teams have adapted. And what 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 is interesting is when you look at the breakdown for NBA, MLB, these ownerships that that do own these teams tend to actually own esports leagues and esports teams as well. So I think the live sporting MLB, NFL, NBA have been ready for this for some time and have been following this trend. So if Corona didn't happen, would they still have done the in-game? versions as well? Is it like a real world and a virtual world running in parallel? It almost is. I think that this virtual type of sporting event, it's been around for a while and it's just gaining more traction now that there's nothing else to watch. Are the results canon? Like whatever they do in the video game, is that like for real? Like, no, no, no. That won't, <laughs> no, that won't count for, okay. yeah, let's make that clear. It won't count. The NBA season is is suspended until further notice. So this is a complete, this is just, this is for just funsies. To, right. This is to keep their fans engaged and and be able to watch their team play, even though it's a who, virtual who team. Who controls these virtual players? So they've partnered with popular streamers, right? And they're now using the service called Twitch, which is the biggest live streaming service in, in the US. Twitch is to broadcast, but right. who's actually playing these individual basketball so players? So there's one, there's one person for the Phoenix Suns representing the Phoenix Suns. He's a popular live streamer. And then another person for the Dallas Mavericks who they So these are as well. gamers. Basically. These are gamers. Okay. Yeah. One gamer per team. Yeah. And they're also the streamers. Right. And what I think would be really interesting, you have a ton of athletes now out of work, so to speak. It's time for some type of pro-am. Some, you pair a professional gamer with a professional athlete, and that's going to drive huge viewership numbers because who wouldn't want to watch LeBron James play with Ninja on uh, Fortnite or NBA 2K against another popular gamer and another popular athlete? So right. these pro basketball players will now have to train in video games. <laughs> it's not that they aren't worried. I think a lot of people are playing video games, right? It's something you do for fun, but now it's something that a lot of people are paying attention to because there's, again, nothing else to watch. How are Twitch streaming numbers looking? They're strong, right? So we're seeing since November 2019. So since then until now, we've seen about a 10% increase. But if you look further back, again, this is a, a trend that has been happening for a long time. And there's also been this declining trend in live sporting events too, right? NFL numbers have been weak for some time. NBA has been on decline from a viewership standpoint for some time. I'll give you numbers here. Look, so with Twitch, so their concurrent users or concurrent viewers from 2012 to 2019 have grown 12x from 100,000 to 1.2 million. At the same time, the NBA regular season games, average viewers for one game have dropped from 4.7 million to 3.3 million. So that's a 30% decrease in the same time period. And the NFL has stayed basically flat at 16.6 million, dropping to about 16.5. So this trend has been happening for some time. It's it's now obviously been just cut, cut off. You can't, can't watch the NBA, but this is just, again, exasperating a trend that's been happening. This is for sport games. What about regular old computer games that have nothing to do with, I guess, replacing a physical event? Okay, so that's a great question. Gaming in general, you have this 
And I think there's an important point to make here and a distinction to make that you have esports, which is going to be your more professional style gaming, which will actually really simulate what we see in live sports. We have teams and leagues, and then you have this amateur side of it, which when we're talking about Twitch is normally what you see. So you have amateur content makers, ninja, the, these type of- like YouTube style. Right, YouTube yeah. style, user-generated video content. And you're seeing strong trend in, in both of those. Esports is taking off more overseas in China. You, you're seeing a lot of that starting to grow and in, in, in Southeast Asia. But in the US, we're more focused on, I would say the amateur side, so the Twitch side. we have side. sold out Madison Square Garden kind of esports events as well? I mean, I, I feel like arena style esports is still, is also a thing in the US. Yeah, it, it is. It, I'm not taking anything away from the US side, but I, when you compare it relative to the China and what we see in the Asian market, it's a smaller fragment of the overall gaming piece. But looking at the gaming space as a whole, right? So taking away from just sporting games, Activision Blizzard, they own Call of Duty. They just launched their new free-to-play Battle Royale style Warzone. This came out during you know this corona crisis and they saw a record number of users within three days. It reached 15 million. That beat out Apex Legend, which came out last year at 10 million. So you're seeing gaming as a whole really seeing strong engagement numbers. Xbox Live went down <laughs> over the weekend. So they are starting to see a huge uptick in, in users given that we're stuck at home and we also have nothing to watch on TV. <laughs> Do you think, I mean, clearly this is going to shift temporary attention over to the digital kind of mm -hmm. entertainment options. I don't know how Netflix is doing, Spotify. These, these seem all beneficiaries of this kind of, you got to switch to, you know, digital versus physical where you, can, where you can't get infected. But do you think any of these trends are lasting? When this is over in a couple of months, are people going to have a fundamental habit change or a different view on esports and gaming as a part of their entertainment lifestyle? Fair question. I think it'll be a hard comparison when you look at this time next year. Yeah. And it'll- Difficult comps. Difficult comps. <laughs> yeah. As yeah, the saying goes, we're going to look back and say, oh, esports and live streaming services are down year over year, forgetting what we went through during this time. But I think what this is ingraining is that these services are actually very entertaining and they do serve a purpose to a large majority of the population that want that that sporting, that live action type feel to whatever they're watching and they can get that. So I think what we're gonna see is a lot of new users give this a try. There will obviously be a fall off when we do resume normal life, but I think it's demonstrating this idea that watching virtual sporting events and virtual games is actually very entertaining. I forgot what the stats were. It was something like if you need 30 days or, or how many days to create a new habit. And this coronavirus, it's probably going to create a it's, bunch it's of It's going to be habits. around for probably a couple of weeks at, at right. minimum, right? Right. And I can definitely see people creating some new habits around, around this time. Kathy always loves to say innovation takes off in difficult times. And it's always been true. It's always right. been true. Like a lot of the stuff you know, we have historically wouldn't exist if there were not some kind of distress. Right. Take salami. Like, why do we have salami, for example? Salami exists because there, there were no ways of doing refrigeration in the old days. I think Italy was under siege by some raiding marauders, and they figured out a way to preserve pork by basically making salami. And now, even though we have refrigeration, people love salami. We still make that stuff. And that was invented basically in times of distress to preserve meat absent of refrigeration technology. 
Well, there you go. I'm going to rein you back in here because we could go on for food for, for a long time. But with this sporting absence in linear TV, what also is going to take off and maybe what people will give a try to is subscription video on demand. So services like Netflix, right? It was reported that in Italy and Spain, respectively, we saw a 57% jump in downloads and a 34% jump in first time downloads. So we're starting to see because sports and that Netflix's motto is perfect for this because perfect. because it's free for the first two weeks, right? Right. But to sign up to have these trials, you need to enter your credit card. Right. So the onus is on you to cancel. Right. So two weeks later, just from a lack of motivation to cancel, you're going to have new subs. So this is really very likely demand pull in or yeah, demand pull in. I think it is demand pull in. And this is not just a domestic event, right? This is a global event that's happening. So it's bringing in users from around the world. Has Disney Plus launched in Europe yet? At Disney Plus has launched in select markets. I believe they are in Europe. They haven't launched in Asia yet, right? which is you know obviously a huge market for them. But again, what this is going to do as well is give some of these new services. So Apple TV Plus, Disney Plus, Quibi, which is going to launch sometime in the next six months. What is Quibi? Quibi is actually a short form video. So all of the content on there is less than 10 minutes. That's their kind of pitch. Is it a US or Asian company? It's US. I see. Yeah. And so I think this is going to broaden people's idea of what subscription video on demand, because when people talk about that, it usually the conversation gets drawn back to Netflix. But now, you know, it wasn't the case five years ago, but now there are a ton of services that offer a ton of content. And you can get free services from Pluto TV all the way to, you know, the Netflix and Disney Pluses where you're paying that subscription. But without live sports, which we've talked about That has been the linchpin for linear TV. And I can't stress that enough how important or how scary it is that linear TV has now lost live sporting events because that's what's been holding most cable users and and linear TV, pay TV users to that market is having that ability to watch the NFL, watch the NBA. So paint a scenario. You're maybe restaurant or hospitality worker. Maybe your hours got cut. Maybe you lost your job as a result of this. All of New York's restaurants are closed right now. You go home, you are subscribed to a you know $100 cable package right? because you love maybe football or hockey or something. But now they're not playing. Right. And it, you, know, you need to cut costs. You used to pay for this because sports was important. Now sports is not even on. Mm-hmm. You look to where to cut. And we already know cord cutting has been happening consistently and accelerating. And now this could really be a catalyst event. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting because... There are a ton of people out there saying that what's first to go in this market are actually going to be the Netflixes and the HBOs, kind of those premium content offerings that you allow yourself to have beyond cable. I think it's the opposite. I think cable is what is, you know, first to to justify itself, justify itself because they don't have any offerings right now, right? They're playing movies on repeat that they've been playing for the past five, 10 years, while Netflix is churning out new content on a daily basis and allowing you to still engage with new and fresh content where cable is, it's lost its golden ticket, so to speak, with sports. Wow. Okay. Well, you know, we've been always focused on disruption and now we live in disruptive times. And I think it'll be very interesting to see what lasting changes the next couple of weeks bring. Absolutely. All right, everyone. We hope you are doing okay at home. Stay safe, wash your hands, and we will be back next week. 
Ark believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that Ark believes to be reliable. However, Ark does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from Ark. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.